Well, uh, Fee mentioned the election, and uh, apparently uh, the spin doctors uh, of Labour, I'm sure the Conservatives are doing the same thing, it's just that the report in the paper was from the Labour camp this week, um, is starting, uh, or has been putting us into groups, target groups. So I wonder whether you recognised any of these as being you. Apparently um, there are, uh, there's a group of voters who are harassed hipsters, uh, there is the stressed semi, uh, Aldi woman, or Aldi woman, depending on how you pronounce that particular shop, uh, the neo-greens, and the settled silvers. <laughs> so, I don't know whether I'm settled, I'm going, I'm going silver grey, certainly. The, the fact is that we know that over the next 80-whatever days that it is, uh, in the course of the, the build-up to the election, there is a whole team of people whose entire job it is to uh, make sure that the message of a particular party is heard, that its leaders are seen in the best possible light, that everything that each key member of that party does contributes to its overall message. Uh, there is a sense in which there is no part of their life between now and the election is exempt from the, the role of the spin doctors and the strategists. And I was thinking as I was reading the passage we're going to look at today at the beginning of Mark's Gospel, just what a nightmare Jesus would have been. A complete, thoroughgoing nightmare for any strategist or spin doctor. Because he simply gets it all completely wrong. At least he seems to. Love you to look with me at Mark chapter 1. And uh, you'll find that on page 1003. I just need my glasses. Do you know, I've had glasses for two and a half years now, and it still surprises me when I look at a page and it's all blurry. Oh, there you go, I can see now. All good. Uh, page 1003, Mark chapter 1. And uh, we're simply going to look at uh, verses 40 to 45. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Well, instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. It seems ridiculous. We're in the midst of a sermon series that we've called Good News, and we're looking at why is this news good? Why is it truly news for everybody? Why is it something that we'd want to tell anyone? And here is Jesus with good news, a healing, not just a healing, but the healing of leprosy. We'll come to why that was such a big deal in a moment. And Jesus knows that over the next three years, there's going to be an increasing showdown with the Roman and with the religious authorities. He knows at least his spin doctors would have told him, that every bit of good publicity, the more that he could build up his crowd, the more that he could build up his popular support, every ounce of good stuff would benefit him. So here was a man well known to be leprous, 
thoroughly healed, a very physical, very external disease that everybody could see, gone. And yet Jesus simply refuses to make any political capital out of it whatsoever. In fact, he crossly, and there's almost a crossness to it, it's certainly when it says in verse 43, a strong warning, it's actually a word used originally for like an animal snorting. It's a really sort of visceral, don't tell anyone. It's a very, it's not just a sort of, I don't think it'll be such a good idea. Don't tell anyone. Now you find this again and again, particularly in Mark's gospel, but not just in Mark. If you go to Mark chapter 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. One of all the things that you'd want to tell the great crowds. Here is a daughter that was well known. It had spread very quickly because Jairus was a very well-known figure. She had died. He goes in, he raises her from the dead and tells them not to tell anyone. In Mark chapter 8, he heals Bartimaeus, the blind beggar who's been sitting by the side of the road, well known as a blind man, and he's healed. And again, he says, don't tell anyone. It's not just the healings. There's lots more examples in Mark's gospel. You can have a look through. You'll find it again and again. But also when he teaches his disciples about exactly who he is, even when they start to actually get it more right than wrong, which is easier said than done, he tells them, don't go around telling anybody yet. Mark chapter 8, again, towards the end, when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the chosen one, God's anointed, he says, don't tell a soul. And then, almost more bizarrely than all of that, you get through 10 chapters of Mark's gospel with Jesus steadfastly telling people not to tell people about the miracles and the raisings and the the, the sort of secret of who he is. You then get to chapter 11 of Mark's gospel on the day that we call Palm Sunday, the beginning of the very, very last week of Jesus's life, the very moment when he's at the very sharp end of his confrontation with the political and the religious authorities, the very time when you'd think he'd most need a boost, you find that for the rest of Mark's gospel, there is not a single miracle no raisings from the dead, no lepers who are healed, no blind people who are healed. Nothing. So what on earth is going wrong? Or what on earth is happening to make Jesus be so secretive? Uh, It can't possibly be that he doesn't want people to hear good news, because he actually sends out his disciples into the villages to tell people the good news of God's coming kingdom. Nor can it be that Jesus somehow was a political uh, uh, sort of novice, that he just didn't understand the way that crowds worked and politics worked. You see plenty of places in the Gospels where you find and you see that this man was immensely clever, very, very wise, very canny. He knew exactly what he was doing. So why did Jesus do it this way? Why in particular did he tell this leprous man who had been miraculously healed, keep it to yourself? Well, I think there are two reasons, and both of them are vital for us, both in how we understand the good news for ourselves, but also in how we live our life as a church and as followers of Jesus. And these two things are these. The first was that Jesus had an incredible laser-like clarity of purpose. He knew exactly who he was, and he knew exactly what he'd come to do. And secondly, that he acted out of an incredible depth of compassion for others. A clarity of purpose on the one hand and a depth of compassion on the other. So let's just deal with each of those. His clarity of purpose. 
There is absolutely no doubt, as you read any of the four Gospels, that Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly what he'd come to do. Nothing turned his head from what he was there for. There are several places in the Gospels where it's very clear that Jesus is on the edge of a mass hysteria amongst the crowds. I mean, actually, we, it's um, there at the end of the bit I read, verse 45. Because this, this leper goes out and spreads the word, which is sort of understandable, really, it says, as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places, and yet people still came to him there. If you go a little bit, um, just two verses later, um, one verse later, verse one of chapter two, it says a few days later when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. Now, honestly, what human being would not have their heads turned by such popularity? What human being would not simply be gradually and slowly blown off course, begin to start to think, well... Do you know, the more people that follow me, the more effective my teaching's going to be. The more people that are in my crowd, well, you know, the more people God's going to have in his kingdom. The more popular I am, well, of course, the more popular God is. It must be good. And yet, Jesus is absolutely clear that he has come not just to live, but to die. In chapter 8, when Peter, his best friend, on this earth, rebukes him, wags his finger at Jesus, pleads with him, begs with him, probably yells at him and says, Jesus, you cannot be imagining you're going to die. That's just ridiculous. He's probably going, look at these crowds, look at the uprising you could lead, look at the popular front you could be part of. He says, get behind me. You're acting on behalf of evil, not good. I know what I've come to do. Nothing short of doing what he had to do on the cross, dealing head-on, face-to-face, with the very depths of sin and of suffering, of evil and of death itself. Nothing less than that would do. Why? Well, because otherwise this good news would be neither good nor news. Otherwise, if Jesus didn't go to the cross, then however much power he might yield would only be power for a moment. Somebody healed for that moment. Somebody raised from the dead only to die again. Demons cast out only to return. The fact is that evil and suffering and death itself needed dealt with once and for all. And the only way to go there was through the cross. But the temptation, the temptation to simply stop, to enjoy the fame, to enjoy the popularity... If you read some of the accounts of the retaking of Europe by the Allied troops after the D-Day landings, and if you see some of the photographs and some of the early film footage, one of the remarkable sights you see is of Allied troops sweeping into, uh, for example, French or Belgian uh, villages and towns. People coming out of their houses and at times lining the streets, showering them with gifts and other things, giving them all the popularity and the status they could ever want. And the sheer temptation simply to stop, to soak it in, say, we've done it. And yet they knew they hadn't done it. They knew this was simply a skirmish on the way. They knew that the big job was still to come. They knew that this was a battle, but it wasn't the war. Jesus knew what the war was. 
He was at war not with an individual sickness or a moment of death or a particular demon or thing of evil. He knew that the battle was with sin and death itself. He wasn't going to get distracted. He knew what he was about. People have often said that the greatest temptation for the Church of Christ is not when we're under persecution, is not when our backs are against the wall, is not when we're tiny and struggling, but is actually when we're popular. The greatest temptation for the people of God is when we actually feel we are something, when people start to look at us with respect, when people start to speak well of us, when we start to be at the centre of things, not on the margins. That's not to say that those things are in themselves bad any more than it is to say that Jesus' healings or his raisings from the dead or his casting out demons were bad. It's not the popularity that's bad. It's that it brings with it the temptation to think, this is what we're about. This is who we're meant to be. And to stop and to miss what it's really all about, which is the good news of Jesus living and, yes, dying and rising for us. It's been lovely to be part of a journey of a church that over 15 years has gone from being on the point of closure and building flats to a point where we're having to look at starting another service because there are some Sunday mornings when we are just too full and our children's groups are bunged. Isn't it great? It's great to be sought out by neighbours and by friends. It's wonderful to be part of something where actually if you say to a neighbour, I go to all souls, quite often they'll go, oh yeah. Not, hmm church now none of that's a bad thing but the temptation to lose our edge the temptation to forget what we're actually here for that we're here because of the good news of Jesus Christ not because we want to be popular not because we want to be everything to everyone it's huge so the second thing if Jesus is so clear as to his purpose if he's heading for the cross why we have to ask ourselves does he stop and do any of this stuff at all Wouldn't it have just been easier if Jesus had walked past the beggars in the streets and never healed the blinds, never touched the leprous, never raised the dead, never cast out demons? Surely that would have bypassed the whole problem of popularity altogether. And more to the point, why is it that Jesus is prepared to go anywhere near this leprous man at all? In that culture, in that day, if you were a leper, and that's why we now use it as a a sort of a phrase, you know, to, to be a leper, you were cast out. You were not allowed within 50 paces of anyone. 50 paces. Because you were infectious. Because you might pass it on. Because people were utterly terrified of the disease. I guess the modern day equivalent right now in the news would be something like Ebola. If you can imagine what it would be like to live with something like Ebola that would gradually kill you over decades and live with that, that was leprosy. Something like that still exists in our world today. Patches. This man is so desperate and yet so sure that Jesus might have the answer that he breaks that rule of the 50 paces and he risks being stoned because they were terrified of him. And he comes to Jesus and he says, interesting enough, he doesn't say, if you're able, he says, if you're willing. He's sure Jesus can do something. The question is, will Jesus do anything for him? Why? 
Well, because to heal him, he'd imagine would involve having to touch him. Now, we know Jesus didn't have to touch him, but we know the way the culture worked in those days. If you were going to pray healing, you laid on a hand. That's what Jesus was going to have to do. This man wasn't sure Jesus would do it. I'm not sure I would. It says that Jesus, verse 41, was filled with compassion. Now, actually, one of the, the, the earliest and best attested of the Greek manuscripts doesn't say compassion. It uses quite a different word. It actually says he was filled with raw indignation, with anger. It's a word that's used elsewhere of Jesus sometimes. It, it makes sense. There is sense here that Jesus isn't, doesn't simply feel sorry for the man. He is angry at the situation this man is in because he is the lost, the last, the least. He is on the outside looking in. Here is a man who will never experience anything that you and I take for granted. He will never feel touch. He will never be under somebody's warm roof. He'll never marry. He'll never have kids. There is nothing that he will experience that he's longed for. The world not as it's meant to be. The world that is broken by human sin, by us turning our backs on God. It makes Jesus cross. Does it make you cross? Does it make me indignant? Or just a bit guilty? It seems to me that Jesus' passions here are not simply out of a guilt or feeling gently sorry for somebody. He is simply raw with indignation that the world should be like this, that people should be so broken and that people should be so excluded and so not as a tactic to get more followers and popularity, nor simply because he thought all he'd come to do was to heal people, simply because this is not the way the world is meant to be and because he loved people the way they were he reached out his hand there would have been the most astonished gasp in the crowd what he's touched him he's gone near him and he heals him and then he says don't go tell anyone why because that wasn't the heart of who jesus what Jesus was trying to achieve. He wasn't there for popularity. He wasn't using this leprous man as an example of his great power. He was simply healing him out of the love of God. And because, well, people get the wrong end of the stick so quickly. It would be very quick for people to decide that this Jesus was simply a miracle worker, a wonder worker. Bring him all your problems and you're solved. Not seeing that he'd come to die and to deal with the war, not the battle, to deal with the disease, not simply the symptoms, to deal with the heart of the human problem, the problem of the human heart. So to avoid misunderstanding, and because he wasn't in a popularity contest, he says to this leprous man who is now clean, don't tell a soul. But of course he does. And the crowds come. But Jesus doesn't lose his focus. He is clear as to who he is. I found it incredibly moving to hear those stories earlier on. A couple of them I'd heard, because I guess I'd heard Fee talk about them in process. But real people, not suffering with leprosy, but for some of them, utterly on the outside, looking in. 
the lost, the least, the last, the bottom of the heap, the people who feel there is no way back, that nobody will want to even go near them, let alone touch them. And the two temptations for us as a church and for us as Christians is to, on the one hand, see the sorts of things that we might be able to do through things like the Iverbridge Community Projects as a means to an end. The temptation to think, well, we do this so that we can tell people about Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. Or to imagine that all we are as a church is simply there to make people's lives a bit better. Do you see those two extremes? Either on the one hand to see community projects of compassion as a means to an end, or on the other hand to see it as an end all of itself. Jesus does neither. He's clear about his purpose. He wants people to know the life-changing love of God as he deals with the problem of sin and death and evil. But as he goes through life, he is filled with an indignant compassion at a world that is not the way that God made it, at a world that is not the way it's meant to be. And so he reaches out and he touches the people that he comes across because he loves them, because he can, because he can make a difference. And you and I can. We can make a difference, a proper, genuine, real difference to the lives of the least and the lost and the last through some of the projects on the Iverbridge estate, yeah? In praying for healing, yeah? In our own personal lives, in our gifts of forgiveness, in our generosity with our money and our time. But we don't do it as a means to an end, nor do we do it because we think that's the only thing we're to do. We do it because of the love of God. Paul writes elsewhere, the love of God compels me, he says, to tell people about Jesus. Well, here the love of God in Jesus compelled him to reach out with the love of God. We're to be clear in our purpose, clear about the cross of Christ that stands at the centre of history, but to be clear also as to what that cross means for the battles along the way, for the difference we can make in people's lives and for the good news we have to share. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus was so clear as to what he'd come to do. Thank you that he wasn't knocked off course by either popularity or by opposition. Thank you that he knew he'd come not just to win some battles, but to win the war, to defeat sin and death, and evil, by dying and rising again. We thank you that that death and resurrection gives us sure and certain hope of a world that will one day be transformed. But as we wait for that day, we pray that you would give us indignant compassion as we see the world that is as it is, broken and far from you. And we pray that you will give us the willingness to reach out where we are, with the compassion of Christ and to make a difference because of your love in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.